Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, Paul continues. He says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he who has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. He says also to Hosea, in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us seed, we would become, we would have become like Sodom. And we would have been made like 
Gomorrah. John Phillips, in his book on the people of Israel, has at the beginning of a a book a, a poem. It goes like this How odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God and hate the Jew. He was talking about this curious phenomenon called anti-Semitism. This almost supernatural revulsion that has been seen over and over again throughout human history. Have you ever hated anyone? Be honest. I can see many of you wearing orange, so I suspect there's a little animosity towards the New England Patriots. Maybe not hate. Why did you hate whoever it was that you hated? Was it because they hated you first? Joanne Hunter tells this remarkable story. She says, quote, My two grandsons had discovered a new word to use when they were upset with each other. Their mother was shopping with them when suddenly they became angry with each other. I hate you. And I hate you too, they yelled back and forth. That's not very nice, their mother said. I'm certainly not going to take two little boys who hate each other to McDonald's for lunch. Five-year-old Jamie quickly backed down. I don't really hate you, Billy. But Billy with the clear logic of a three-year-old, responded, I still hate you. I'm not hungry. (laughs) That's exactly right. When the consequences don't seem so immediate, the history of the Jew and the Christian has been strained from the very beginning. Calvin Miller wrote, quote, Hate is born when men call evil good and like an infant serpent um, bursting from the small confining shell, it can never be so small again, unquote. It, It was Calvin Miller's way of saying that once the serpent has come out of the egg, it will not return to its origin. It will only continue to grow. But we know as Christians, we know as people of God, people who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, that we love each other. That's our command. We're to love one another. And because we're to love one another, there's also no room in our hearts for anti-Semitism. That isn't a part of who we are, what we believe. Paul insisted that apart from Christ, both Jew and Gentile are lost. Paul didn't make up this doctrine of Christ's exclusivity. The Lord God in his sovereignty determined that there would be only one way to be saved. Through the sacrificial death and the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the Lord God made promises to Abraham and to Isaac, to Jacob, to 
to David. So what is it? What is it about salvation? What is it about God's sovereignty that caused so many people to slip, to stumble? Why are so many people confused and perplexed and deeply divided over this subject? And the tension, of course, lies in the balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Is God sovereign over his creation? And the answer is yes. Do human beings have a free will? And can they reject God's promise? Can they reject God's provision of salvation? Can they reject redemption in the person of Jesus Christ? Can they hear the gospel repeatedly preached and rejected the gospel. The reoccurring theme of the Bible seems to be that the answer is yes. In the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is this drama that we call life on the planet earth and drama in the human heart. God loves humanity. God desires to see people saved. The Bible isn't joking when the Bible says that, it's, that God wishes for all to come into a saving knowledge of the truth in the sense that it's not his will that any should perish. Well, then why is it that some do perish? Why are some lost? Can God be blamed? Does God elect some for salvation and then reprobate others for hell? Does God hate anyone? Does God hate individuals and reject them for no other reason than just simply a divine preference? Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we read, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven, whereby men must be saved. There are many people, tragically, who believe that there are many paths to heaven. I used to believe that myself. I used to be annoyed and upset with the Christian's constant assertion that Jesus was the only way to heaven. I thought how small-minded and how limited. I didn't understand that Jesus rejected the notion that there were many ways to heaven. That Paul rejected the notion that there were many ways to heaven. And you can imagine when Paul affirms to his Jewish family and friends, there is no salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, that this frustrated many people, this angered many people, this upset many people. And maybe you're angry too by me simply bringing up the subject. Paul's reminder made a good many Jews incensed. Someone might say, look, Paul, you've indicated that you love the Jews. You've rightly pointed out that there are 
privileges for the Jews in verses 4 and 5. Well, then, if the Jewish people are lost, then God has failed. God hasn't kept his promise in verse 6. Some people retain the same attitude today. If God loves everybody, then why isn't everybody saved? The idea that God would save everyone is a concept called universalism. Universalism universalism is the belief that in the end, God will, in fact, find a way to save everyone. Universalism is the idea that all roads eventually lead to the one and final path. Universalism is the idea that everyone will find their way to heaven, even if it means apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. Jesus says there really is no such thing. That that can't possibly be true. Jesus refutes the notion in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. When Jesus begs people, enter by the narrow gate, he says in verse 13 of chapter 7. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in that way. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. And you might be thinking, you're wrong, Gino. Narrow is your mind. Confused is your thinking. Arrogant is your presumption that all people are going to hell who don't trust Jesus as the Messiah. I'd be lying to you if I said that there wasn't a time in my life where I believed that. And I might even be tempted to change my opinion if you could demonstrate from the scriptures that Jesus was wrong or that the scriptures are unclear on the subject. Remember what Paul is doing. Paul is defending the claim or the accusation that God failed to keep his promise to Israel. And Paul bases his argument on the nature and the character of God that a perfect God is incapable of failure. And then Paul argues and makes his case that God keeps his promises on the basis of his faithfulness in verses 6 through 13. On the basis of God's righteousness in verses 14 through 18. On the basis of God's justice in verses 19 through 29. Paul is in effect arguing that God chose before the world began a plan of salvation and a plan of redemption. And that that salvation and redemption would be in the person of Jesus Christ and in the gospel of Christ. God chose according to his perfect knowledge and will those who would come to him. This is called the doctrine of election. And some of you might be wondering, well, how can I be sure? How can I be sure that God chose me? The answer is simple. Choose him. It's that simple. I don't understand. Well, welcome to the wonderful world of theology. Where some answers to life's questions are known. And some are puzzling. And some are unknown. 
In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, Isaiah said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, speaking of God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul's argument remains valid for the person who is thinking thoughts. Is God truly kind? Is God truly good? Is God truly fair? The reoccurring theme of the Old and the New Testament is this. That God never acts in a way that is inconsistent with his character. That he is always faithful. He is always righteous. He is always just. And now, look again in verse 6. The Lord saves on the basis of his faithfulness, but... It is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. The New Living Translation says, Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to the Jews? No, for not everyone born into a Jewish family is truly a Jew. What are you saying, Paul? What does that mean? Not everyone born into a Jewish family is truly a Jew. Paul is arguing that natural descent, that is Jewish bloodline, isn't sufficient for salvation. Simply being born a Jew doesn't make you saved. Any more than being born an Italian makes you hip, although it helps. There is no genetic linkage. To salvation. People aren't born saved or born lost in the sense that just simple biology determines destiny. In verse 7 it says, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, it says, your seed shall be called. What Paul is pointing out is when he says, nor are they the children because of the seed of Abraham, he's, reoccur- he's repeating what Jesus said. That not everyone who's simply born as an offspring for, of Abraham can call themselves children of God. Remember, Jesus said that he could cause the rocks that are along the pathway to Jerusalem to become children of God. The New Living Translation again says, just the fact that they're descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scripture says, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Through Abraham, though Abraham had other children too. In other words, it isn't biology that breeds destiny, but what he's pointing out is that the true children of Abraham, just like the true children of Isaac, are the true children who embrace the revelation of the promise of God. And Paul will illustrate the story in the Old Testament occurrence of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was truly a descendant from Abraham. He was, in fact, Abraham's biological progeny. But God arranged for Isaac to be born of Sarah. According to a promise. And the promise was a supernatural birth. 
God was going to work a miracle inside the womb of Sarah. And some people might argue, well, Gina, clearly all births are miracles. Seven billion people live on the planet Earth. With them, and again, I'm not here to talk about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above. It is true that there is an element of the miraculous, but the truth is when men and women have relations with one another, it, it's not unusual for it to produce a child. Paul's point is that Isaac is going to be the subject of a promise and the subject of a miracle. He's pointing out that God's promise is God's choice. And it's really, really important that you remember that. God's promise is God's choice. In part, because Ishmael was born to the maidservant, Hagar. And you'll remember that Paul, later in the book of Galatians, is going to rightly point out that it becomes a type and a picture of those who embrace the promise and those who reject the promise. Next, Paul will cite the next case. It's the story of Rebekah's children, Jacob and Esau. In verse 8, it says, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. Now, remember in verse 8 when he says, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, Remember what the flesh becomes a type and a picture of in the Bible. The flesh is everything that you are apart from God. It is everything that you are apart from Christ. And so when he's pointing out that is those who are the children of the flesh, he's talking about apart from Christ, apart from the promise, apart from the covenant. He says these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise in verse 9. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. For those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament or you've read the book of Genesis, you know the story how the Lord, along with a couple of angels, shows up at the tent of Abraham. And Abraham is frustrated because the promise is taking what he thinks is a horrible amount of time. And he begs God to allow the promise to be fulfilled in Ishmael. And the Lord says, no. I'm going to fulfill the promise according to my own word. Now I want you to think about that because it becomes such an important part of understanding the text. You see, people have always believed, always believed, That there's two ways to come to God. On God's terms or on their own terms. For the people who have always believed that they could come to God on their own terms, they've always been wrong. And for the people who have believed that I must come to God on God's terms, have always been right. And so the big question is, what are God's terms? And from the very beginning, God said, these are my terms. I myself am going to provide the vehicle and the mechanism of salvation. 
And so in verse 10, it says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, in verse 11, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. He draws together the illustration of yet the second patriarch, Isaac, and the birth of the twins, Esau and Jacob. And you'll remember it says in verse 12, it was said to her, by who? By God. That the older shall serve the younger. In what sense? That the seed of promise is going to be by the younger rather than the older. And in this particular instance, remember, they are twins. They are fraternal twins. It could have been an act of coincidence, if you will, that, that Jacob could have come out first and then Esau could have come out second or Esau comes out first and Jacob comes out second. And you'll remember that in the text, it seems like there was a war taking place even within the womb. So what is it about the Lord? Because you see, under normal circumstances, biology, culture, Social custom means that the older has the privilege and the younger does not have the privilege. But the Lord says, guess what? Promise and privilege come from the Lord. And that becomes part of the point. Promise and privilege comes from the Lord. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And if you look at verse 13 where it says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He's quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Malachi was written long after both Esau and Jacob were dead. So why does the Lord say that? Some translations make the statement less blunt. Quote, in the words of the scriptures, I loved Jacob, but I rejected Esau. So is the word, that strong word, hate, is it the less strong word, rejection? But remember, rejection Seems like a fairly powerful word, doesn't it? Especially if we put it alongside the word that is normally used. Accept, reject. Now, when you're talking about something as important as salvation, when you're talking about something as important as being accepted by God or rejected by God, you want to know what the basis of that acceptance and that rejection is. Do you know what the reoccurring theme of the New Testament is? You are accepted in Christ. And you're rejected apart from Christ. You are accepted in the gospel. You are rejected apart from the gospel. So let's ask a, a hard question. Maybe one of the hardest questions that could ever be asked. Does God hate people? Does he hate anyone? Some people might think, well, if God hates people, that gives me permission to hate them too. After all, why are the sunsets orange? 
if God is rooting for the Broncos, it makes perfect sense that anyone rooting against them are rooting against God. I read something that was really interesting. Anne Lamott in her book, Bird by Bird, says, quote, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. How convenient that God loves everybody that you love and he hates everybody that you hate. But that's not what the passage is saying. Let's think this through. Why does the passage say, Jacob I have, ha- I have loved, but Esau I have hated or rejected? What did they do to deserve God's love or his hate? His acceptance or his rejection? Verse 11 makes the question even more difficult and more complicated. Because again, before the twins were ever conceived, before their character is formed, before the choices have been made... What makes this such a difficult question? It's because of our presumptions. Paul challenges whether or not it's even appropriate to discuss the matter in verse 20. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 29 verse 16. And then again in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 9. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me this way? In verses 20 and 21. You see, our human tendency is to measure and critique and judge God and judge God's ways on human terms and human conditions. And to even raise the issue of unfairness assumes that we know what fair looks like. Before you accuse God of injustice and unfairness, you would have to know everything God knows. And you would have to be perfect in your judgment. So how can we fathom his ways? How can we know his mind? How can we ever be in the perfect place to judge God? We understand that we process things on finite increments. We receive and perceive God's revelation in the context of weak and frail human vessels. Paul concedes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, that we only see partially. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see darkly as in a mirror. Only God has the ability to see things clearly and with perfect understanding. So does God really hate? I'm going to suggest to you that you remember the context even of the quote in Malachi chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. God has chosen a people to be a blessing to the world. Let me even put it in in, in different terms. I'm going to quote Malachi. Well, he quotes Malachi chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The prophet's concern in Malachi chapter 1 is to demonstrate a love for Israel, not hatred for Edom. Edom, by the way, is the offspring of Esau, the people who would become the people who occupy the very south 
and eastern tip of the Dead Sea. These are the descendants of Esau that live in modern-day Jordan that were part of a group of people called the Nabataeans. Now, again, the quote is a reference to nations and not to individuals. And the core idea is not the election or the rejection of nations, but the evidence of God's sovereign freedom to advance his redemptive plan through Israel. Think the gospel. Think Jesus. That God has a plan and a purpose. That God's love for Israel and God's dealing with Israel and God's plan for Israel can't be compared with any other nation. Let me put it to you again a little bit differently. Imagine, I'm trying to find an illustration that will include everybody, but we'll start with men. Men, imagine you meet a girl and you fall in love with the girl. And you say to the girl, you realize, of course, that because I love you, my love for you is like, that means I hate every other woman who lives in the world. When a guy falls in love with a girl, is it, is it, is it his way of saying, I love you, which means I hate everyone else. Now we could flip it too. Imagine a girl falls in love with a guy. And she falls in love with a guy and she says, I love you. And when the girl says, I love you, does that mean she hates every other man on the planet Earth? I know the wife might poke you and go, well, it does in my case. (laughs) But it's normally not true. The love that you have for your husband and the love that you have for your wife doesn't mean that you hate everyone else. Does the love that God has for Israel mean that he hates the nations? No. Why else would Jesus say, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Amen, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Well, does God love sinners? In John 3.16, the most famous verse, you'll see it on the end zone when you either go to the game or watch the game. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, he's not, again, talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. He's not talking about the glory of nature. He's talking about the world of humanity. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In John 3, 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. What is the point that Paul is making? Remember, God hasn't failed Israel simply because Israel has failed God. True Israel are true believers. That's Paul's argument. 
Paul's argument is the true Israel is the ones that actually did what Abraham did, believed God's promise. And see, this is the key. Abraham believed God's promise. Isaac believed God's promise. Jacob, when he put a rock and used it as a pillow and had a dream of a ladder that stretched between heaven and earth and he had a vision of angels coming down on the planet earth believed God's promise that Jacob would be the instrument of of furthering the promise. The wonder is not in God's rejection of Esau, but rather in his acceptance of Jacob. We're back to the question. Has God chosen you? And the best assurance that that has happened is because, again, you've chosen him. The Bible says no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. There is a drawing that takes place as you hear the promises of God. You hear the promises of God. What are the promises of God? That there's forgiveness and hope. There's repentance and reconciliation. If you'll love Jesus and trust Jesus, accept God's invitation. Trust him. Believe him. Rely on him. And look at verses 14 through 18. Now he argues on the basis of righteousness. Look what it says. Paul anticipates the cries of unfair and foul. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Phillips translates this verse. Do we conclude that God is monstrously unfair? Never. Some people have suggested that Paul's answer really isn't an answer. Well, is God unfair? I'll give you the quick answer. The answer is no. God is not unfair. To put it in the positive, God is fair. Why? Because God by his nature is incapable of unfairness. He's incapable of unrighteousness. He's incapable of wickedness or injustice. You see, again, do you remember when you were a kid and you were appealing to your mother and father and you put your hands on your hips and you said, that's not fair. Even as a child, you have a keen sense of justice, fairness, and rightness. By the way, are parents capable of unfairness and injustice? The answer is yes. And so sometimes we project iniquity, unfairness, We think that God is capable of the things that our parents are capable of and incapable of the things that our parents are incapable of. Let me just give you a little quick theological note. God would cease to be God if he ever acted in a way that was inconsistent with his nature or his character. When the Bible says that God is love, it can't mean that he's hate. And when the Bible says that God is good, it can't mean that he's bad. And when the Bible says that he is just, it can't mean that he is unjust. A.W. Tozier said the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one that is so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done 
not deliberately, but little by little, without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic, unquote. God isn't like you or me. The Bible says that he's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. In verse 15, Paul writes, for he says, that is, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Verse 16, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows judgment? No. Panic? No. Wickedness? No. Mercy. You know what Paul is doing? He's quoting Exodus chapter 33 verse 19. Paul says God is fair. And the reason may surprise you. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Again, the New Living Translation says, for the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you, for the very purpose of displaying my power in you so that my fame might spread throughout the earth. So you see, God shows mercy to some just because he wants to. And he chooses to make some people refuse to listen. The Lord God Almighty Paul says, answers to no one. Not even me? No, not even you. I know it's an incomplete answer, but if a child has ever said to you, why are you doing this? And the mom says, because I'm the mom. Are children happy with that answer? If a child says to the father, why are you doing this? And the father says, because I'm the dad. Are children satisfied with that answer? By the way, do moms and dads say it simply because there is no reason? Or do moms and dads sometimes say it because there's a child-appropriate answer that they may not understand at this particular moment in their life? But maybe later they will understand. Imagine if a child said to you, please, mom and dad, can I have a handgun? Please. But you're only four years old. I know I'm only four years old. Well, I, you know, I, I, I think that four years old is maybe not a good age for a handgun. Why, mom? Why, dad? You know what? I have nothing against guns in general, but at age four, is it a good idea to leave a child unsupervised with a gun? So it's a bad idea. And see, once you're willing to concede that there is such a thing as a good idea and a bad idea, then you begin to understand something. God is not responsible or accountable to anyone. 
including you. Paul is using the subject of Pharaoh by way of explanation. Paul moves from Moses to Pharaoh, from the person who's oppressed to the person who's the oppressor, to the person who's received the promise, to the person who's rejected the promise. What exactly is Paul saying? Paul is, would point out that Pharaoh deserved to die. Paul would point out that Pharaoh was a wicked, evil man who prosecuted and persecuted the Jewish people. Pharaoh is the one who made the declaration that all of the children born to Jewish women, the moment that they had them, that they should be drowned in the River Nile. When a government authority or an individual says, your unborn baby isn't deserving of life, Kill your unborn baby. Is that a wicked position or a righteous position? It's a wicked position. Pharaoh deserved to die. Pharaoh deserved to be killed on the spot. But God allowed Pharaoh to rule the land of Egypt. To demonstrate God's power. Pharaoh would become a kind of international and everlasting poster boy for the supremacy of God. Paul mentions the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's true. What Paul doesn't include is the Old Testament testimony that Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. In Exodus chapter 7 verse 14 it says, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go, Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. And he did not heed them as the Lord has said. So what is the truth? The truth is that God gave Pharaoh repeated room to change his mind and to repent. Pharaoh resisted God's command. Pharaoh resisted and then refused God's warnings. The illustration that I like to use is imagine sunlight. Sunlight, when it beats down on a piece of ice, melts the ice. Or when sunlight beats down on a piece of wax, it melts the wax. But what happens when sunlight beats down on a piece of soft clay? The soft clay becomes hard and the hard wax becomes soft. The sun is the sun is the sun. It's man's heart that determines whether or not the heart will melt or the heart will harden. You see, there are people who are committed to reject God no matter what. You know, God loves you. I don't care. You know, Jesus loves you. So? You know that there's forgiveness and hope in Christ. Stop talking to me. Did you know that heaven is a wonderful place and you could go there? Now you're telling me I'm going to hell? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? In Exodus chapter 7, 
verse 14, it says, Pharaoh's heart is hard because he refuses to let my people go. He understands that human beings can and will and do make choices. So what is the truth? God understands and accepts the fact that you will make choices. God gave Pharaoh repeated warnings and opportunities to believe. And I'm going to suggest to you that God has given most people repeated warnings and opportunities to believe. And so he ends with the Lord saves on the basis of his justice. We're going to have to read it quickly. Look what it says in verse 19. You will say to to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Paul hears another cry from the peanut gallery. Wait a minute, Paul. Time out. If God is in control, if I'm just a puppet on a string, if I'm a dancing Pinocchio, if I'm just some cosmic cog in some sort of tragic object of God's wrath or affection or or care or concern, how is it possible that God holds me accountable and responsible? If God chose some for heaven and if God chose others for hell, What if I'm one chosen for hell? Clearly, God uses Pharaoh's disobedience to further God's divine agenda. Pharaoh's evil heart actually does bring glory to God. People will use the same argument for Judas Iscariot. How can God use people and then hold them accountable? That's unfair. Again, you may not like Paul's answer. Read it for yourself, verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? You see, most people will look at that passage and they'll read it this way, like the New Living Translation. No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to criticize God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who made it, why have you made me like this? Does God create moral, responsible human beings for the deliberate purpose of destroying them? The Bible doesn't make that claim. The Bible has never made that claim. The Bible says that God makes human beings with the ability to make full, free, real choices to accept or reject, believe or not believe. And for the person who claims that belief and acceptance, that rejection is not a product of belief, misunderstand the Bible because the Bible says that belief isn't a work. Belief is an opportunity. Paul draws attention to God's patience in the process. Does God deliberately harden a human being for the purpose of damning him or her? The Bible says no, no, in 
Oh, verse 21, does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? The fitting for destruction in the vessels of wrath isn't, it, it's actually reflexive in the original text. It's a self-accomplishing thing. It was the result of their choice and their action. God accommodates his purposes in these vessels when they exercise their own desire. You might be thinking, why didn't God make me a flower vase? Why did God make me an ashtray? I'm going to suggest to you that God doesn't make you hate him. That God doesn't make you reject him. That God doesn't make you say, I'm going to hate God and I'm going to hate Jesus and I'm going to hate the gospel. That's not what the Lord does. In verse 23 it says, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, Even us whom he called, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Even us whom he called. Who's the us that he's referring to? He's talking about both Jew and Gentile who receive the call of God, turn from your sin, turn to the Savior, accept and embrace Christ. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles. But notice, it's not Jew of every kind. It's not Gentile of every kind. It's not all Jews. It's not all Gentiles. It's made up of some of each whom God has called. They are not of blood, but of the Spirit. They are not by accident, but by the atonement. And there are three great divisions as it ends. Hosea's citation concerning the Gentiles in verses 25 and 26. Isaiah's citation concerning the Gentiles in verses 27 through 29. And then Paul's conclusion, which we'll look at the next time we meet. In verse 25, in verses 30 through 33, in verse 25 it says, as he says to Hosea, or also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who were not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. He repeats that at the beginning of, of Romans when he says, those who are called, he gave the right in John, the opening chapter of John, to be called the children of God. The application of the prophecy to Hosea, if you read Hosea, God is speaking to the ten northern tribes of Israel. God is speaking to apostate Israel. At least on one level, as God is speaking to apostate Israel, they're exactly like their Gentile neighbors. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that God would treat the northern kingdom and the apostate people the same way that he would speak to the Gentiles. The prophecy was fulfilled when Paul preaches the gospel to the, to the Gentiles. And Paul says, 
You are not my people, but you shall be called the sons of the living God. Why? Not because of a new biology, not because of a new progeny, not because of a new nationality, but because of a new relationship. This is not racial, it's familial. No longer is the bond based on the law, but on life. It's not based on biology, but the spirit of the living God. It's not nation by nation or clan by clan, or family by family. But it's each individual making a commitment to turn from his or her sin and accept Christ. In verse 27 it says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved, verse 28, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, and Sabaoth, by the way, is an expression which means hosts or armies. Unless the Lord of the armies or the hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Here's the contrary case by Isaiah. The people intended to be his people failed to be his people. The people who weren't really looking for him become his people. This is Paul's argument basically saying, The people who used to be on the inside are now on the outside. And the people who are on the outside are now on the inside. And Paul invites the Romans to consider a new question. How did this happen? How did the people on the outside become the people on the inside? And how did the people on the inside become the people on the outside? The quick application, of course, is, is it possible that you could have been born into a family on the inside? That you had every privilege, every opportunity? Your mom and your dad, they loved you. Your mom and your dad, they told you about Jesus. Your mom and your dad loved you and told you about Jesus and drug you to church even when you hated it. And you heard the gospel and you heard the gospel and you rejected the gospel and you decided you were going to live your own life. But imagine you grow up in a home where your mom and your dad don't love Jesus and they don't care about the Bible and they don't care about the gospel, but there's something empty and there's something dark and there's something lonely inside of you. And even though you were on the outside, you went looking for what life could be like on the inside. And you heard about Jesus and you heard about the gospel and you heard about his love for you and you heard about his willingness to forgive you and to change you. And the people on the inside become the people on the outside. And the people on the outside become the people on the inside. The rejection of Israel is seen in the sorrow of Paul in verses 1 through 5. And the rejection of Israel is seen in the selection of a specific seed. The moment that he chooses Isaac and the moment that he chooses Jacob. He is choosing a promise and he's choosing a way and he's rejecting any other way. Well, I want to come to God 
my own way. Sorry. The rejection of Israel is seen in the sovereignty of God. The rejection of Israel will soon be seen as the stumbling block in verses 30 through 33. Part of the point of the passage is exactly that. Paul is trying to help the Roman people understand God's plan and God's promise and the gospel and Jesus and that the plan and the promise and the gospel are links in a chain that means salvation for everyone who knows and loves Jesus. And it means no life apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that Paul is inviting us to consider a new question. Not what does the law think about me, but rather what does the Lord think about me? Lord, we know that the sin question isn't answered apart from the son question. Not our righteousness, but his righteousness. That the sin question is answered in Jesus. That there's hope and there's forgiveness and there's love and there's grace and there's mercy in Christ. And Lord... We thank you that you were willing to have mercy and extend us grace and repeatedly extend the invitation to come to you, to love you, to know you, to experience grace and forgiveness. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we pray, we pray, we pray that when the invitation is given, and the offer is extended that our hearts would not be hard, but soft. That we would be open instead of closed, willing instead of unwilling to embrace Jesus. And Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that if we come to you, you will in no wise cast us out. That, Lord, the repeated invitation is, if we'll turn from our sin, if we'll turn to you, that you will love us, that you will accept us, that you will forgive us and not reject us, but receive us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.